All right, well, let's hear from the Lord. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to uh, Malachi, it's the last book in the Old Testament. Turn to chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Now let's go before the Lord, the word of prayer. Father, I ask you, Lord, just thank you for your presence here with us today and for all the wonderful testimonies. And I uh, just ask that your spirit will continue to work with us and, and in us. And I uh, ask you, Lord. Spirit will speak through me, Lord, the words that you want to have to, to help us today, Lord, to help our church here, and that you'll give us all hearts to receive what you have to say, and uh, that we can be encouraged by your word and convicted if need be. And we thank you that you'll do that work in us to bring us to the end, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Malachi chapter 3, we're going to start reading beginning in verse 6. And it says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. And the Lord says, Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, Wherein shall we return? And his answer is, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with the curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation." Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord, and yet you say, well, what have we spoken so much against you? You have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. And then you shall return and discern between the righteous and the wicked between him that serves God and him that serves him not. So, you know, most of us know Malachi was the last of the prophets, and he's on the scene at about 450 B.C. And the last word in the book of Malachi is curse. And so what happened? Jesus had to come and remove that curse, didn't he? Because the world was under a curse and always has been. So the edict from Cyrus to rebuild the temple had been 100 years before Malachi came on the scene. And so he comes after, we've talked about Ezra and Nehemiah here. He comes after those guys have been on the scene. So what we have is the people have come back. The temple's been rebuilt, the walls have been rebuilt, and all the sacrifices have been reestablished, reinstated. And so you would think, because of that, God's fulfilled his promise to bring his people back, like he told Jeremiah, you would think everything would be joyful and happy. And what we have here in Malachi, it's not that way, because the people really aren't doing well. 
And part of it is they are not an independent state like they were in the days of David and Solomon. They've been under foreign rule for years, ruled by foreign powers. Their economy is in a shambles. Things are not going well for them economically. And it just seems like the Lord to them is letting them down. And they're asking themselves, you know, where's all the promised blessings? Where's the glory that we were promised, the glory of Solomon's temple? It doesn't seem to be here. They're like, what's the point in serving the Lord? And it's all summed up in what they say right here in verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, you have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And so they're saying, we just don't see any point in serving you with all of our heart. And they don't have any respect for the Lord. The whole book of Malachi, it's about God is appealing to them to come back and repent. It's dialogues that he's having with his people. It's an urgent, passionate appeal for his people to come back and return to him. Because he's saying, the problem's not that it's in vain to serve me, but that you haven't been serving me faithfully. So the thing is, every time he appeals to them, he doesn't get a good response. I don't want to just look at a few of those before we get into what I really want to say. But if you'll turn to chapter 1, for instance, and look in verse 2, we read there, God says, I have loved you, saith the Lord, and yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? I mean, God is telling them, he's saying, look, I have loved you in the past. I'm loving you now. You've been a special people, a called out people. I've given you special privileges. And yet, I mean, he's given them the law. Paul says in Romans 9, giving them the glory, giving them the covenant, the promises of Abraham, all of those. He gave that to no other people on the earth. And yet their answer to him is, wherein have you loved us? I mean, it's a pretty arrogant answer for the people to give back to him. You know, I like the way the NLT, I'm going to give the NLT translation here several times because it really gives the sense because God says, I have loved you. And the NLT says it like this. Really? How have you loved us? They're saying, I don't see it. That's what Israel, because they're looking at their present circumstances. I don't see it. Here's the thing. It's hard to see sometimes. He doesn't just get smart with them. He doesn't just say, I'm done with you. He condescends to them after they give him a smart aleck answer, more or less, and gives them an answer. Because he says, look, here's what I'm going to say. I've chosen you above all others, is what he goes on if you went on to read it. I've chosen you, even your brother Esau. He says, I've loved Jacob, your father, but Esau, I hated. And he said, I chose you to have an intimate relationship with me like no other people on the earth. And you're asking me, how do you love me? I don't believe you. And that's what they're saying to him. And it goes on. If you look down in verse six of chapter one, he next appeals to him. He says, a son will honor his father, God says, and a servant his master. And he says, if I then be a father which he is. He's a father to the nation. He says, well, then where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest that despise my name? And what do they say? They come right back at him again, and they said, well, wherein have we despised thy name? And the NLT says, well, how are you saying we've ever shown contempt for your name? Come on, what are you talking about? Saying, how have we done that? We've offered up all the sacrifices that you told us to. We got the priest back in place. And God goes on to say, well, really, you've offered all the sacrifices I've asked you to. But look at the sacrifices of the ones that you've been offering. It's like polluted bread, he calls it. 
said, you're offering blind, lame, sick animals at my altar. He said, try that on an earthly governor and see if he'd be happy with you. He said, he wouldn't be happy with you at all. And he says, I am the great king. He said, the nations of the earth fear me. They're giving me the fear that you should, and yet this is what you're doing. You're showing contempt for me. And he goes on, he gives them a warning there in chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2, and he says, Oh, now you priests, this commandment is for you, the Lord says. He says, If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, he says, I've cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. Now that sounds harsh, doesn't it? Even just to read it. But it really is God's grace. He's saying, I have no choice. Because of who I am, because of my justice and holiness of my nature, I have to curse you. He's saying, just listen to me, would you? Just do what I'm asking you to do. He's got their best interest in heart. Like I said, it sounds harsh to read. And the last appeal I'd like to look at, he makes several more. But the last one I'd like to look at is over in chapter 3 in verses 6 and 7. And we read this. But look what he says here. He says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. He says, Even from the days of your father, you are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. But look, he says, Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, Wherein shall we return? Listen to how gracious God is in that. He says, look, you people have been this way with me from the beginning. And I believe he's talking about from the beginning of the Exodus when he, in a sense, birthed them as a nation. He says, from day one, you guys have never faithfully walked in my commandments. Yet, he says, even now, even despite all of this, even despite what all these other conversations we've had in chapter one and two, I'm still saying, just return unto me. And God says, I will return unto you. That's his heart. That's what he's wanting from them, wanting to come back to him. Pleads with them. He says, I'll come back like the prodigal's father. I'll run to you. But their answer is, wherein shall we return? How are we going to do it? What did we do? How did we leave? That's what they're pleading with the Lord. Here, the NLT again gives the good sense of it. How can we, the people are saying, how can we return when we have never gone away? That's their answer to him. And he's patient with them again. He gives them an answer. He goes on and he says, look, he could have just wiped them out, couldn't he? I mean, he really could. Most of us, that's what we would do with somebody that talks to us that way. But instead, he gives them a specific example. Look in verse 8. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. And yet you say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings, he says. So he says, you've robbed me. And they're saying again, Robbed you? How could anybody rob God? Is their answer? You can't rob God. He's like, oh no, you have robbed me in the tithes and offerings. You've taken what was mine. Taken what was mine and used it on yourself. And you've brought a curse on yourself. Now here's one thing I do want to point out. That he doesn't give like a general sense. Well, you've just left me. You're just bad kids. No, he doesn't say that. He gives them a specific thing they need to do. And I heard a man say this years back in this pulpit, somebody that came and spoke and said, you know, God's usually dealing with us on one thing, one thing where we have gotten away from him. It may be more than that, but that's general. And I thought that's a good thing. That usually is the way it is. And so he's not going to just say in a general sense, just generally make us feel guilty. He may deal with you on your pride. That may be what he's dealing with you on or your need to deal with your anger or the fact you're not praying. 
specific sins. That's what God's going to do. And that's what he's doing here with this tithing, because God is a master surgeon. And he knows how to get to the heart of the matter, so to speak, doesn't he? So he's confronting them with the fact they've been withholding from God what was rightfully his and using it for themselves. And he's saying, that is how you've left me. And I'm sure they justified it because they weren't doing good financially and like, hey, we're broke. And the little bit we have wouldn't amount to much. And we need it for ourselves and our family. Now, how can we afford to give it to the priest? That's probably how they're justifying it. Let the priest get some money from the rich people. Or else let them go out and work like we have to do all the time. They just sit around and read the scrolls anyways. No big deal. And pray at the wailing wall. Probably how they were justifying it. And I'll tell you how I know that in a minute. So listen, what was the tithe though? What is he after in bringing this up? So the the tithe, it was a token. Just a token to show that their whole life belonged to who? Everything belonged to God. Everything they had their lives, their land, their livestock, their family, who did it really belong to? Anything we have, nothing belongs to us, does it? He says in Deuteronomy, he is the one that has given us power to get wealth. It is not within ourselves. He gave it to them. This is a token to show we're just acknowledging that everything belongs to you, Lord. And also, what was another? It was a way to show thankfulness that he's given them anything, isn't it? Thanksgiving. Isn't that what we call it? Thanksgiving and thanks you give back to the Lord. That's what's going on. It also was a means for these priests to live. They did have to survive on something because no, they didn't have land and no, they didn't have jobs. But also what was the tithe when we give? It's also a sacrifice. We're sowing seeds, so to speak. It's not a tax. It's not a debt that we owe the Lord. It's a cheerful sacrifice that they're supposed to be given to the Lord. And he tells them there in verse 10, he says, so bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. He says, don't just bring part of what you owe. I want all of what you owe. In other words, don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. They're acting like they're bringing everything and they really aren't. Their heart was wicked. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't just bring in part of that tithe and try to act like you've done everything I've asked you to do. Verse 10, he says it right there. He says, bring in all the tithes. And I'm sure they're thinking, man, our crops have been bad this year. Like I said, wouldn't be much for me to bring in. What's God trying to do? Just leave his people with nothing? Is that God's goal in this? And I'd say it was just the opposite. Look, he's not short on cash, right? He's really wanting to bless them. And that's what he's saying here in verse 10. He's bring all the tithe into his storehouse that there may be meat in mine house. And he says, prove me now herewith saith the Lord of hosts. This is what I'll do for you. See if I won't open to you the windows of heaven and pour out to you a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive. But here's what he's after with this, isn't he? He's after our heart, your whole heart, because as it's been said, when God has your wallet, he has your life. He has you. That's the truth. He's got your wallet. He's got you. And so he says in verse 10, prove me, just put me to the test. He says, you give me first what I'm asking for you, and you see what doesn't happen afterwards, that it will. Their attitude is, well, you bless us with a lot, and then we'll do the tithing. He says, no, it doesn't work that way. That's not the way it's going to work. So (laughs) you have to give to God in faith, not looking for any gain, and just know that God promises he will bless us back. And I said, I'll tell you how I know that went. Just let me share this. Maybe this will help somebody here. 
We moved here back in the 80s. I had work when I got here, and all of a sudden my work dried up. I would have been putting change that made noise in the offering box. And at the time, I'm like, I mean, I always gave, but I'm like, that's humiliating. What good is that going to do? You know, I just wasn't getting the principal. And you know what happened? I had a year that year. And I'm like, well, Brother Hamilton, he seems he's doing better than me. That's what I'm saying. I know how these people were thinking because I thought that way. Well, he says you're cursed with the curse. Guess what? That year, I had jobs that couldn't have gone worse if I designed them to go worse. I mean, I was paying my employees twice as much as I was making, and they're making minimum wage. I mean, I was like that much below the poverty line, and I kid you not. And one day I happened to hear a tape of Robert Ellender's, and he dealt with this very thing. And I sat there, and God just convicted me big time. You're cursed with the curse. You've withheld. You have to give. It doesn't matter how much it is. You need to give it. And I made a determination between me and the Lord right there. I was still, I was deep in the hole. I was in bad shape financially at the time. I wasn't in debt. But I wasn't doing good. And nothing looked good, but I made a determination between me and the Lord, I'll give you everything I have that I don't care how, if it's a penny, I'll give it from here on out. And I'm saying, all I can tell you is it immediately, in a sense, I mean, it didn't turn around overnight, but it did, in a sense, turn around overnight. I could show you my little Social Security thing when they show you how much you made and all that. It's just a steady climb up from there on out because God is faithful. He says, prove me. And that's the way it is. But he had, for me, I had to get my attention, just like he is with his people. Now, was God being mean to me? Put me under a curse? I was under a curse. I put myself under a curse. Isn't that what he tells them here? And we've got to be faithful. And listen, do you all think I'm after your money? I'm not after a penny of your money. Believe me, I'm not. I've never asked for a penny here, never will. So that's not the point. But the principle is this. The principle in Scripture, our time our talents, our gifts, our ability, our money is all his and we need to give it back to him. Because if we're going to withhold, it's going to make us poor. It's all his. It's more blessed to give than to receive is what Jesus said. And what about that rich man we need to remember in Luke chapter 12? He's like, man, I have got all this stuff. And what am I going to do? I'm going to hoard it, build bigger barns. And the Lord said, you're a fool. Because he not only lost what all he had in those barns, but what else did he lose more importantly than that? Tonight, he said, your soul is going to be required of you, and you just lost it for money. That's why he says, take heed and beware of covetousness. And we're living in a society right now, it's easy to make a lot of money. You want to get out there, you need to make sure your spiritual life is your priority and not making a bunch of money and whatever all else. So God is making an appeal, we're seeing here, for his people to turn back to them. He's not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to make this harsh today. He's asking us to do that because he wants to bless them and wants to bless us. He's saying, if you respond, I've got positive promises for you. But there's warnings there if you don't. And that brings me to the heart of what I want to say today. Two groups of people here in Malachi chapter 3. And they're talking to each other. Two groups of people. And God hears them both. Hears both of them. The first group we're going to look at is found in verses 13 to 15. The second group is found in verses 16 to 18. The first group is a group of proud, backslidden people. And the second group are the faithful remnant that was there. So I want to talk about the first group. I will say briefly first. And I mainly want to focus in on that second group because here's how it came to me. I was in prayer meeting, praying about what to, to preach on tonight, and Brother Terry read that verse. 
the other day and it just came back to me. It's come back to me several times and it just has stayed there. And that's how it all came about. But I want to look at this first group in verses 13 to 15. And look in verse 13. God says this to him. He says, your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord of hosts. Your words have been stout. That word stout means you've been speaking strong words. You've said some very hard things against me is what the Lord says. In the NLT again, he said, you said some terrible things about me, says the Lord. And once again, the people protest. What do you mean? Look at what they say there in verse 13. Yet they say, what have we spoken so much against you? What do you mean? Well, what have we said against you, Lord, is the question they ask. And he answers them there in verse 14. He says, listen, I was listening to you when you were having conversations. Verse 14, you have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? It's useless, they're saying. He goes, God said, I heard you say that. What's the point of serving God? It's useless. It's vain. And they go on to say, well, there's no gain. Verse 14, there's no gain or profit in keeping his ordinances. He says, you know, we have been given something. We've been keeping his ordinances. We've been given something in those sacrifices, right, in the temple. All right, well, it hadn't been much, and we have just been bringing our roadkill. But, you know, it's not like we haven't been doing anything, and we've been fasting for our sins, and we've been mourning, and yet, has God rewarded us? They're saying, look around, look what we have. We don't have anything. It's useless to serve him. I mean, that's pretty arrogant. They act like they have been, and they haven't been at all. It's like, you know, I've been doing all this, bringing something of mine in here, and now I still can't pay my bills. Where's my healing that he promised me? I'm not doing any better. It's worthless to serve him. He's turned a blind eye. And God says, no, your words are really hard against me. And not only that, they add verse 15, and now... These people, they're going to call proud people blessed or happy. And yea, they that work wickedness, they're the ones that God has set up. And they that tempt the Lord, he delivers them. Two charges. So in verse 14, they're saying, you don't reward righteousness. That's what they're accusing God of. And in verse 15, they're saying, you don't even punish the wicked like you say you will do. Those are two pretty harsh charges they're bringing to God. They're saying you're unloving, unfair, and unjust. And God says, listen, I hear what you're saying, but those are some very stout, strong words that you're speaking against me. And sometimes, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's someone in here that feels like that, that God hasn't dealt well with them, that they're serving him, and yet he hasn't done what he would say and has given them a bad hand. Is that what you think? Well, Job thought like that. Do you know that? Job defended his righteousness before the Lord. He goes, I don't know what this is all about, but I've lived a righteous life, and I just don't deserve what I'm getting here. That's what he basically said, right? And all of a sudden, you read the end of Job, and in this storm, in this whirlwind, God appears to Job. And here's what he says to Job. He says, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. And what was Job's answer to that This is the way our answer should be. He says, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. God wasn't done with him yet. Job said, wait a minute. Oops, I think I just made a mistake saying what I said about the Lord. And that's what these people should do that they didn't do. But look, 
The Lord went on to say to Job, he says, then the Lord answered Job after he said that about putting his hand over his mouth. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, now prepare yourself like a man. Gird up your loins is what the King James says. He says, I'm going to question you and you will answer me. So what is God's reply? The last thing I want to look at with this verse is what is his reply to these people these arrogant, proud, backslidden people in verses 13 to 15 that have spoken against him and said, you're not doing the justice you promised the Lord. You're letting the wicked get away with things. You know what his answer is? It's right down there in the first verse of chapter 4. Look at what he says. God says, no, they're not getting away with the thing. He says, for behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven. And all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly. You thought they were getting away with it? What does he say? They shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, and it will leave them neither root nor branch. He says, oh, no, you're saying really hard words against me. But one day, you, if you don't repent in these ones you're talking about, there will be nothing left. Justice will be done on my timetable. And so that's just a warning to us. What I want to look at the rest of the time is verses 16 to 18, because there's another group. Another group that's speaking to each other when these hard words are spoken to God. And this is a group of humble saints. And this is the group that we want to be in if you're not already there. Amen. Look in verse 16. Then at that time, they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Ah, you know, you get the picture when you look, look at those verses 13 to 15, they, they're wearing him out with what they're saying. It's just hard for him to listen to this talk that's going on. And I mean, literally, that is true. But if you look, at chapter 2, verse 17, the end of chapter 2, he says this, you have wearied the Lord with your words. They were, they were wearing him out. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? And he says, when you say everyone that does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or where is the God of judgment? They say, that just wears the Lord out to hear that because he knows that's just flat out not the way it is. And that's what he's saying here. But what we're saying is those people are wearing him out. But then he hears this other group talking. There's another group that's there at the same time. And it's different than everybody else. And that word hearken means it gets his attention. He's been hearing all this other, but here is this other group of saints and they're getting God's attention. Wait a minute, he's saying. What are those people over there saying? They're not saying the same things as that first group. Ah, oh, telling the angels, listen to those words. They're speaking of my faithfulness, my justice, my love. My righteousness. Get a moleskin. Tells when they get a moleskin in a pen. You guys don't know what a moleskin is? It's a little diary thing you take notes in. Can't believe you all are looking at me like you don't know what a moleskin is. Right? I thought I was being up to date. I guess I'm too up to date. Anyways, but he tells them, hey, you write what they're saying. Write it right in front of me. Write it down. That's what he says. A book of remembrance is made. Write it down. Those words are precious to me. So the first characteristics I want to look at of these people, these humble saints, is it says that they feared the Lord. And we need to understand that, what it means. Because a lot of people today, commentators, and a lot of these modern books, everybody wants to reduce the fear of the Lord to just simply respect and reverence. 
Okay, so I think respect and reverence are definitely there in a definition of the fear of the Lord. But I think it's a lot more than that because I think a true fear of the Lord will include awe and dread. Terror, if you will. I don't mean the terror that the damned feel because they're going to hell. Not that kind of terror is not what I'm talking about. But I think when a person experiences the reality of God's holiness and his power and his majesty, there is going to be an abiding sense of awe and fear. And we see that all through the Bible. And that's what he's talking about with the fear of the Lord. You know, the knowledge of God's holiness and justice, that will produce a fear that leads to deliverance and salvation, right? I mean, isn't that the song we sing? It's what happened with me. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." I had a vision of hell before I got saved, and I saw myself headed right there. I knew, I mean, I was petrified, and it became on me like it never had. Couldn't get away from it. I'd been convicted before, but that awesome day that was coming, and at 21 years old, most people aren't thinking that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit does that to a person. So this dread, this fear, this holiness, power, majesty of God, it's not something you're just going to think about. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. That's what happens. The grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fear relieved. And I do think when you're saved, that fear of eternal punishment is relieved, but not the fear that God is a as Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 4.14, a great and terrible God. Or that God is, we sing this song in Exodus 15, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. And it says in Deuteronomy 28 that God is one whose name is glorious and fearful. How many have ever read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Jonathan Edwards. That's one of those books that if the Holy Spirit's there when you're reading it, you will be holding on to your seat. So I have read that at times, and it just didn't do a lot to me. I've read it at other times when it's just like God opened up my understanding to where, and it wasn't that I was afraid I was lost, but I'm seeing the day of judgment, his awesome holiness, his majesty, and it just produces a fear in you, a holy respect. But more than that, it's like a terror, a dread. This God is so beyond us. And we need to have that. And that's what these people have is what I'm saying, because the lack of that is what causes these other ones to speak all these arrogant, smart words back to the Lord. They really don't know him. They don't know him. They don't have an understanding of who he is, because fearing God is the greatest motivational factor in living a holy life as a Christian. So the Sermon on the Mount, people with the pornography problem, I'm saying you don't know about how holy God is. And that that day of judgment is coming and that you are literally playing with fire. Because you say fear shouldn't be a motivation. Well, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ used. He said, if you can't help yourself, pull your eyeballs out. Because you'd be better off missing an eye or both eyes than to, what's he say, than to perish in hell. And didn't Jesus say, don't fear them which kill the body? That's the end of what they can do. But rather, he says, fear him who can cast soul and body into hell. He's saying that to disciples. We're to fear him. First Peter 1, 17 says, if you call on the father who without respect of person judges according to every man's work. Peter's writing to Christians. He says, pass, because you know that God is going to bring every man's work to judgment. He says, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. 
the book of Hebrews said we should be afraid of turning our back on the Christian faith because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And what would you do with this verse? Philippians 2.12, it literally says, work out your own salvation with fear. And he doesn't stop there. He says, and trembling. I looked it up in the Greek. You know what the Greek, the word for trembling means? Trembling. <laughs> Quaking with fear. I mean, that's what it means. Well, you don't quake in fear, right? I mean, there's got to be something causing that. I'm saying there's a holy terror there. It's not a bad thing. It really isn't, I guess is my point. So I say the fear of God consists of both reverence for the Lord and a holy awe, which results in holy conduct and right thoughts about God. Because that first group, they didn't have either. They didn't have right thoughts about the Lord and they didn't have holy conduct. The second group, they live in the fear of the Lord and God honors them for that, doesn't he? That's the whole point. That's why we want that. That's something to pray for. Something the Holy Spirit will produce in you. Proverbs 23, 17 says, Let not thine heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. Not just a temporary one-time thing, not just whatever. He says, be in the walk in the fear of the Lord. Don't be envious of all these people that seem like they have all, they can get anything they want, they can watch anything they can want, they can say anything they can want, go do. He says, don't be envious of them. He says, no, you walk in the fear of the Lord all the day long. And all the days of your life, I could add on to that. And so it says we're to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12. It says that the early church of this of them, after Ananias and Sapphira did, and they saw the justice, they saw the holiness, they saw the majesty of the Lord and what happened to them. And it says after that, that great fear came on the whole church because they realized this God is no God to be messed with. And later it says about the church that they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. You're like, man, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. No, I'm not. You can still have that holy respect and awe of God and still have the comfort of the Holy Ghost knowing all is well with your soul. Not a contradiction. It really isn't. Being in awe of God and loving God are not a contradiction either. They aren't. So we're still here in Malachi, and the second thing I want to see, we want to look at with this group is they feared the Lord, and it also says they spake often one to another. Now, it doesn't say exactly what these people said. We know what the other group said. Now, this group, it doesn't tell us, does it? All we know is that they spake often, and this was their way of life. Speaking often, it's their way of life when they were together. And I believe they're encouraging each other in God's faithfulness is what they're doing. I'm sure they're helping the weak sharing testimonies, praying with one another, getting together. Because that's what we have here in Hebrews 10.25. It says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, or the word is encouraging, encouraging, exhorting one another, so much the more as you see the day. Are we seeing the day approaching He's saying that much more. We need to be with each other, exhorting, encouraging one another in the Lord. God's faithfulness, right? So the Hebrews, 
Think of the context of that book. Those people are struggling. They're under severe persecution from their families, from the, the people in Jerusalem. They're leaving this religion that has been established. And as far as they are, they're apostates from the Jewish religion. Uh, severe persecution. They're tempted to go back. And he's saying, no, you all need to stick together. It's the only way you're going to survive that pressure. Stick together. Encourage one another. The whole book is about that. This is a better way. We have a better priest. Jesus is better than Moses and on and on. You don't want to leave this. This is salvation. They say you need each other to encourage. And that's what we need each other for. We need to not be avoiding each other. We need to be looking for times we can get together with each other. Telling each other to hang in there. And also back at the beginning of Hebrews 3, he says, Take heed, brother, unless there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Here's another one another. He says, but exhort or encourage one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So we can encourage each other how? Now I'm saying you, you don't want to make it forced. It's not like I'm saying don't talk about the weather. You know, we just, everything we say is, you know, if we're going to give a weather report, it has to be a scripture verse to say, you know, the sun riseth in the morning. <laughs> I'm not trying to make that, okay? But I think there's times that we can share the scripture with each other in a natural way. Testimonies like we hear today or just like we sat and talked to lunch that time. I, we shared all kinds of testimonies, didn't we, brother? We did. It was edifying to me. It really was. Things about God's faithfulness. Or I was at a prayer meeting the other night and somebody, this wasn't easy for him. Can I share a scripture with you guys? And yeah, sure. Well, that sharing that scripture led to a discussion. So sometimes we've got to just get out of our comfort zone. And all of us can work at that, right? And then things will become more natural. So I would say, so how do we do that as a church? How do we begin? I mean, number one, I would just say it helps to just get to know people that you don't know. Talk to some people you don't know. Find out about them. Ask about their background, how they got saved, just things, how they grew up. Just start to get to know people that you don't know. Have them over for dinner. Ask them out for coffee. Somebody that you generally wouldn't talk to. And you'd be surprised what you'd find out. Now, I remember <laughs> when Miss Owenby passed away and I went to her funeral, I sat there and I talked to her sister. And her sister told me all these things about Miss Owenby and how she was in high school. I'm sitting here thinking that explains a lot of things about how Miss Owenby was that would have helped me understand her and relate to her better. I thought I wish I'd have asked her about that. Now, I did talk to her quite a bit, but I'm saying when you start knowing things about people, you learn how to relate to them. And it just creates a relationship. We need to start there, I think, first of all, in a lot of ways. We don't have to get all deep, like, immediately. But number two, I'd say we do. We just need to learn how to talk to each other about the Lord. So it's easy with the people you're close to and your friends and all that, but we need to make it to where it's a body thing, right? We can minister to each other. Share about an answer to prayer or something you read in the Bible that day. I mean, I would hope everybody's reading something in the Bible every day. Or a good book you read about, or if you're involved in ministry, ask somebody about that. I'm sure they'd be glad to tell you. And then, hey, that's a way you could know how to pray for them. Just a lot of ways that can be. When we get together and talk about the Lord in groups, however big or small they are, that is when the Lord will be in their midst. He will hear that, just like we read there. He hearkened and he listened. His ear is down there. But not only that, he will come in your midst. Luke 24, 15. Those two disciples, they're walking down the road to Emmaus. It says they're talking about the things of the Lord, the things that just happened with the crucifixion. And here's what it says there. It came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, 
Jesus himself drew near. You want the Lord to be in your midst, in your conversations? Just start talking about him. And it says he drew near and went with them. As they're talking about the Lord, he hears that. That's what brought him up there to those two guys. And it says he's with them and walking with them. And eventually it says he opened up the scriptures. Uh, have you had that happen? I mean, I've had that happen a lot of times in my life where you get together with the group and you're not trying to be spiritual, not trying to be anything. You're just wanting to talk about the Lord or just whatever. It's a natural conversation. And God is there in that midst. You can tell then and you can tell later. Maybe it'll be confirmed in a message. We used to have that happen a lot of times. And another thing I would say is, to, as far as encouraging one another, if you know somebody's going through a difficult time, you don't have to kind of butt in their business, but it's a time to maybe let them, just let them know. All of us can use to be encouraged, right? You're in, going through a hard time, whatever it is, hey, if you need to talk, I'm glad to talk. I just want to let you know I'm thinking about you, I'm praying with you. If the God gives you something to share with them, it's a good thing to do, isn't it? And I think that's what's going on here. They're talking, it says, one to another, often. So we need to let our speech be godly and edifying. Colossians 4, 6 says this, Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So we should seek to speak words of faith and encouragement to others, right? And that's what Caleb and Joshua did. In Numbers 13, the ten spies came back and they spake words that discouraged the people. Had everybody upset. And it says, not Caleb. So we're talking about those that spake about the Lord that he's listening in. It says, Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, we be not able, that's what their words are, to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And their report so upset the people that it said, all of Israel is up all night weeping because of this bad report that was given. And so the next day it said that Joshua and Caleb tried to encourage the people with these words. The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into the land and give it us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. All the time these conversations are going on, God is listening. And he's taking notes. You know how we know that? Because he told the evil congregation that spoke against him, he said, you, because of your words, I was listening. You will die in the wilderness. But I was listening to some other conversation going on. My servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and has followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Remembrance before the Lord. You know how we know that? It was 45 years later when Caleb says, God promised me something because of something I said, and I want it. I want it now. Give me this mountain. And he got it. And that's what we're seeing here. God's hearing these words. He's hearing what we're saying. And he's writing it down. Putting it in a book of remembrance because one day that is going to bear fruit, isn't it? That's what it did for Caleb. That's what we have here in Malachi 3.16. 
So that's it. This book of remembrance was written with their name in it. Look at that. It says, they feared the Lord, spake often one to another, and it says, the Lord hearkened and heard it. And then it says, a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. So as one man said, I thought this was good. All of our life is a theater, and we are the actors. Every kitchen, every car, every den, every office, every bedroom is on stage. And God is on the front row of the theater and doesn't miss a single line in the drama of our life. Not one. No matter where or when or with whom we speak, God hears our conversations and knows what each word implies about him. Now that's something when you put it in perspective like that, isn't it? So he hears what these godly people say here. It catches his attention. He hearkens. He listens and he says he's written it down in a book of remembrance written before him in his presence. He says, I'm going to make sure this is not forgotten. And it's not because God has a bad memory or he's getting old. Right. He's writing that in there for our benefit to encourage us in them at that time. Those that love to think about his name. So God is just I got this book of remembrance here. He's just to punish the wicked, but he is also just to reward the righteous. And that's what he says he'll do. You speak about me to one another. You keep me in your conversations. You encourage one another. You speak words of faith. Oh, I'll reward you for that. That's what he's saying here. That's what's going on here. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unrighteous to forget the work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name. So God listens and records every godly word that comes out of our mouth. When we speak to each other, when we pray, when we bless his name for his goodness, his mercy, and his holiness. And it says he writes it down. Writes it down in his book. And he will reward us in his own time and way. You know where we have an example of that? Kings. Kings did that back in that day. In Esther 6. Remember King Xerxes, he couldn't sleep. So he commanded, he says, bring me the book of the records the chronicles, everything's that happened. And he had it read them to him. And he hears about the actions and the words of Mordecai, which were written down. He asked him, he says, have we done anything for Mordecai? Have we honored him for saving my life and honoring my name? And they tell him, he said, nope, nothing's been done for him. And he says, well, something must be done to honor this man. That's what he said. It's written in the book. And Malachi says, God has our things that we've said and done written in his book of remembrance and he's not going to be less than that king he will do something he will honor us he will remember and that's why it says in first samuel 2:30, those who honor me god says i will honor first corinthians 15 58 says therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast unmovable always abounding in the work of the lord for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the lord so God will reward us. He will. So what are the rewards that he has here? Look at verse 17 is the first one. It says, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. And God says we will be his treasured possession, his jewels. And a jewel is just a precious stone that's been cut into a certain shape and polished to be worn as an ornament. And God says, that's what we're going to be to him. 
So he's reaching down. He reached down in that miry clay and pulled us out. Rough as we were, as we've heard so many times, right? And he's polishing us and shaping us and cutting us to be a jewel, making up his jewels. Psalm 135 says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob to be his own, Israel to be his treasured possession. So how does he do the cutting and polishing? Through the trials, through the fire, through the heat. First Peter 1, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So when did he pick us up? When did he pick us up and choose us and predestinate us? In eternity, before we were ever formed, didn't he? And decided that we were going to be his possession treasured possession. Why did he do that? So we could enjoy eternal fellowship with him, being conformed to the image of his son. That's what God wants. That's what he wants for all of us, right? We've heard that many times. Well, let me ask you these two questions. Can you believe that we are the people who will give deep pleasure and delight to the heart of God? Can you believe that about yourself? That that's why he's chosen you? And can you believe that God looks upon us you as his treasured possession. Because that's what he told Israel. He says, now therefore, if you will obey my voice, Exodus 19, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. And Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, for you are a holy people to the Lord our God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Can you imagine that? He picked you and saved you out of all the people on the earth. Millions he's passed over and has picked us. And the second thing he says there is that he will spare us. And he says, I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves us. And so God says, because we serve and honor him, that he will spare us. The arrogant say it's useless to serve the Lord. It's vain. But God says those that will serve me as my sons, I will spare them. And not only in the day of judgment, but he says he promises he'll also spare us from what? The great tribulation. And that's a promise. Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my patience, he says, I will also keep you from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. And that is a great promise. Because I want to say, God says he will spare his people, and he has always made, this is a principle that we see in the Bible, he's always made a difference between the wicked, his, the wicked and his people. He's always made a distinction. Lot lived in Sodom, didn't he? But when judge, judgment came, what happened? God made a difference. Because Abraham's prayer was this, if there be 50 righteous within the city, will you destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So he's saying, won't you spare that place? You're not going to kill your people, destroy your people with the wicked he said, that wouldn't be right. The judge of all the earth won't do that. And God says, well, if there's 50 and they get it all the way down to 10, right? There weren't that many there. But he still spared Lot, did he not? Amen. Through the intercession of Abraham. 
parents with unsaved children. God will spare your children through your intercession. Because here's what the Lord told Abraham, and it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered. We're talking about he's got a book of remembrance, and that he will be faithful to do that. It says he remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities. So he spared Lot because of the words of Abraham. He's not going to judge the righteous and the wicked, the righteous with the wicked. And so when God judged Egypt, think about that, to deliver Israel from bondage, he made a difference, didn't he, between the righteous and the wicked. So when he sent the plague of flies on the Egyptians, he said, I will sever in that day. I'm going to set apart, he said, sever the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there to the end, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Listen to what he says. I will put a division between my people and thy people. And so what does God promise there? In, in verse 18, he says, you will return and discern between the righteous and the wicked between him that serves God and him that serves him not. And God promises that one day we will discern between the one that is serving God and the one that is not serving God. And a lot of times you can't tell. Sheep and the ghosts are together. But what does he say? That judgment, that's when the separation takes place. Where does he say that's going to begin? In the house of God. That's where it's going to begin, and it has begun. And we will see who is serving the Lord and who is not. That's what he's telling us here. So the final reward, I've named two of them. The final reward for those that fear his name and a book of remembrance is written is right down in chapter 4, a song we sing. Malachi 4.2, it says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. But he's saying, those that fear his name, that healing's going to come, and they are going to be like a calf that is running and kicking and joyful, that's been released, released from the power of the enemy. I mean, that's what we're seeing there. And so Peter and John, when they came across that lame man and they told him to look on them, it says, Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. I would say that pretty well fits the description of Malachi 4.2. Go forth as calves from the stall, kicking those hind legs, leaping and walking. And that's what happens when God grants deliverance, healing in his wings. So we're back to that is the reward for those that will speak often one to another of the Lord, who writes that book of remembrance. He says, I won't forget you, just like I didn't forget Joshua and Caleb. I will honor your faith. And one day I will come with healing in my wings and you'll be leaping and walking and praising God, the young and the old. That's for all diseases, right? He's going to bring healing in our midst, I do believe. And we're hearing more and more testimonies along that line. It's going to come through our faith, through the gifts, 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how God heals. It's going to happen. And when that happens, there will be in our midst, it won't be hard, I won't have to preach, but there will be leaping and dancing and joy and praise to the Lord. Amen? <laughs> there really will be. And let's just end by reading verse 16 again. Let's make a determination we are going to be these people and not the group before. But it says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord heard it, and hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And everyone that could say that will be then say, Amen. 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 That was a good response. All right. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word that you've given us today, Father, and I ask that you'll put in all of our hearts that we will be people of the word that will speak about you, speak good things about you, Lord, and your faithfulness and your word and the promises that you have given it, that we'll learn to speak edifying things, speak grace to each other and to those that hear us, that our speech will be seasoned with salt. And so, Lord, that you'll look down and you'll be in our conversations. Your ear will be bent towards what we're seeing. Your presence will be with us at those times. And you'll honor our faith. You'll honor our conversations. And you'll honor us as a church, Lord, as people that want to be faithful to you, to what you said. And I thank you, Lord, that you'll do that in our midst and that you're moving in our midst now, Lord. And we ask you to continue to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.